Once in a century, a rare person is born who sees the world from such a unique perspective that their life's work changes the world. It takes a perfect storm of factors. The stars need to align in just the right way to produce this kind of child. Biology needs to agree with their inherited circumstance and opportunities. And all three need to agree with his or her advantageous placement in human history. The world must be calling for their specialized genius. The problems humanity faces at the time of their birth must be begging for solutions. On July 10th, 1856, such a perfect storm came together. In a small town in Croatia, Juka Tesla was about to give birth to little Nikola Tesla. As a heavy thunderstorm was brewing, lightning lit up the night sky. And at the stroke of midnight, Nikola Tesla entered the world. The midwife who assisted in the delivery held little Nikola. And as she handed him to his mother, she said, your son is a child of the storm. To which Nicola's mother replied, No, he is a child of light. Tesla would go on to live up to that title, a child of light, to the highest degree. Now, if you're not familiar with him, Nikola Tesla was a brilliant, brilliant inventor in the early 1900s. I mean, a man just with a staggeringly unique intellect, and his main field of focus was electrical engineering. But he's actually credited by many historians as being the inventor of the 20th century. None of our technology would be here without him. Now, that's a bold claim, but from his over 300 patents, which included everything from radar to x-ray to radio to dozens of special kind of motors that continued being used for decades after, if you even factor in one of his greatest achievements, alternating current, you may start to agree. All the electricity that we are benefiting from right now, that you are benefiting from, is available thanks to Tesla. From the lights in your home, the current that powers your TV, to the current that charges your smartphone. All the great cities in the world run on Tesla's current. There should be statues of this man in every capital. His genius is the stuff of fairy tales. He arrived in New York City in 1884 with four pennies in his pocket. He changed the world, and he died in New York City in 1943 in a hotel room with no money to his name. How on earth is that possible? He died a beggar, subsisting on crackers and milk for lack of money. That's the paradox of this man's life story, and that's always fascinated and uh, disturbed me a little about him. The question is why? How? There are these paradoxes that thread their way through all of Tesla's life from beginning to end, and, and they're calling to be reconciled. And that's what this episode is about. The Paradox of Genius. Welcome to Creative Codex. 
I am your host, MJ Doyen. Let's begin. One sunny afternoon, Nikola Tesla was in his Houston Street laboratory in Manhattan. He was experimenting with oscillators, which are electronic devices used to emit sound waves and even vibrations. He attached the little device to a support beam in his lab that ran the length of the building. He switched it on and started to gradually adjust the frequency it was emitting until bingo the beam started to vibrate. He had found the resonant frequency of the column. The test was proving to be a success. He started to feel a vibration in the floor as the sound wave traveled down the length of the beam and spread under his feet. He increased the intensity on the knob. It was just a quiver, but his downstairs neighbor began to notice his ceiling shaking. The other neighbors thought it was a heavy truck banging down the street, but the shaking persisted and grew stronger and stronger. The vibration spread across the entire floor of the laboratory and into the neighboring buildings. Some of the locals in Little Italy and Chinatown began spilling onto the streets, thinking an earthquake was happening. The trembling was incessant and horrific, causing windows to shatter, pipes to stretch. The local police on Mulberry Street, they felt it too. An earthquake in New York City? Impossible. The police station was right around the corner from Tesla's lab, and they were all too familiar with the strange lights and sounds which would happen throughout the day and night from that building. As the ground shook, furniture was moving, pipes were breaking, and the officers thought the police headquarters was about to collapse. Two police rushed out the door toward Tessa's lab. They reached his building. The vibrations felt even stronger there. They ran up the stairwell, facing the fear that the building might collapse on them. As they burst through the door to Tesla's lab, they were met with a bizarre sight. Tesla, swinging a heavy sledgehammer at one of the iron beams, he smashed the little device off and the vibrations instantly stopped. No more earthquake. Tesla was surprised to see the two uniformed police officers just staring at him in shock. He approached them with the sledgehammer still in his hands and said, Gentlemen, I'm sorry, but you are just a trifle too late to witness my experiment. I found it necessary to stop it suddenly and unexpectedly in an unusual manner, just as you entered. If you will come around this evening, I will have another oscillator attached to this platform, and each of you can stand on it. You will, I am sure. Find it a most interesting and pleasurable experience. Now, you must leave, for I have many things to do. Good day, gentlemen. <laughs> Apparently, Tesla was completely oblivious to the near destruction he had caused in the neighboring buildings and the neighborhood. The police were, I'm sure, as dumbfounded as the rest of the neighborhood. Everyone at that time 
knew who Tesla was. He was routinely in the New York papers. You can actually look up the digitized papers from early 1900s New York City and find dozens and dozens of newspaper articles interviewing Tesla about lightning or electricity or reporting on his new experiments. He was an odd but welcome fixture of the modern industrial age. And boy, was he odd. Enough so that it was one of the first things people mentioned about him in passing conversation. For example, if you were to introduce yourself to him and extend your hand, he would politely refuse your handshake. Not because he disrespected you, but because he was a compulsive germaphobe. In the event you were an important banker considering funding his research, he had to shake your hand, but right after he'd quickly excuse himself to the bathroom and vigorously wash his hands. Occasionally when you were speaking to him, there might be a strange break in the middle of the conversation, where Tesla would stop mid-sentence and look far off into the distance without uttering another word. Seemingly lost in a daydream of some kind. Who knows, maybe peering back into the dimension he came from. We know this because he would even do it after inviting journalists to his lab to unveil an elaborate new wireless light bulb or his notorious death ray. During one press event, he was taking questions from reporters and then mid-sentence, he just stared off into the distance. The questions from the reporters kept coming, but without answer or even acknowledgement from Tesla. And the reporters just eventually saw themselves out, leaving him just standing there lost in some vision. Now what the hell was that about? What was going on in his brain? It's actually really helpful to look at his autobiography, which he titled My Inventions. There's a few passages about his childhood and about what he routinely experienced in his mind. It's strikingly insightful. All the while, it seems he also comprehends how unique these things are, which is kind of even more strange, that he is self-aware of his weirdness and yet still embraces it without feeling the need to become more normal, right? I mean, in Tesla land, normal is something to be avoided. In his autobiography, he describes something that sounds remarkably like schizophrenia. He says, In my boyhood, I suffered from a peculiar affliction due to the appearance of images, often accompanied by strong flashes of light, which marred the sight of real objects and interfered with my thought and action. They were pictures of things and scenes which I had really seen, never of those I imagined. When the word was spoken to me, the image of the object it designated would present itself vividly to my vision and sometimes I was quite unable to distinguish whether I saw what was tangible or not. This caused me great discomfort and anxiety. None of the students of psychology or physiology whom I have consulted could ever explain satisfactorily these phenomena. They seem to have been unique, although I was probably predisposed, as I know that my brother experienced similar trouble. The theory I have formulated is that the images were the result of a reflex action from the brain 
on the retina when under great excitation. They certainly were not hallucinations, such as are produced in diseased and anguished minds, for in other respects I was normal and composed. To give an idea of my distress, suppose that I had witnessed a funeral or some such nerve-wracking spectacle. Then, inevitably, in the stillness of night, a vivid picture of the scene would thrust itself before my eyes and persist despite all my efforts to banish it. Sometimes it would even remain fixed in space, though I pushed my hand through it." Unquote. We should take Tesla at his word here. Numerous times he re-emphasizes the point that these weren't visualizations one might imagine if you closed your eyes, let's say. These were fully-fledged visions that at times would appear real enough that his inclination was to reach out and touch them. So what the heck is going on here? It's not a normal thing, right? And he seems to comprehend that it's odd. I mean, referring to that no psychologists or students of psychology have been able to explain it. So he's consulted or explained it to them before. Is it some form of synesthesia? Is, is his brain just wired differently? Is it brain damage from the numerous childhood injuries and sicknesses Tesla always mentioned? Is it some unique form of schizophrenia? The reason I mention schizophrenia is that people who suffer from that disorder have visual hallucinations, specifically when under great periods of stress, which he makes a point to mention, too. And the hallucinations appear to them as real as the environment around them, but Tesla tries to discount that theory uh, kind of in a funny way by saying they couldn't be hallucinations because those only happen in diseased and anguished minds, and he was normal and composed. Well, there's a problematic term again, normal. In today's understanding, we know this actually isn't true. Mental disorders can happen to people who have otherwise clean bills of health. The first physician to classify schizophrenia as a distinct disorder was a German doctor named Emil Kraepelin in 1887. Tesla was born in 1856, so he would have been 31 years old by the time schizophrenia was even beginning to be recognized by the medical community. We now know that the disorder can be inherited, which would make sense why Tesla mentions that his older brother, also suffered from similar visions. The link between stress or high anxiety and hallucinations seems to actually be a key onset point. And when you read about Tesla's habits, you see that he had no qualms with pushing his mind and body past the point of reasonable limits. And he was known to often only sleep three hours per night, working nonstop, taking only occasional naps, and when he was studying at university in his teens, it seems he would have a mental breakdown at least once a year from working past the point of mental exhaustion. At one point, his professor sent a concerned letter to Tesla's father that Tesla might work himself to death. So his father's solution? He stopped praising him for his good grades, which only confused Tesla and ironically, made him work harder. But what I just don't get is that these vivid visualizations Tesla had 
they seemed to turn into something useful for him. He says that these visions were a nuisance at first, and then he began to engage with them, calling up specific objects, and by the age of 17 he, he could exert a degree of control over these manifestations. Tesla states, My method is different. I do not rush into actual work. When I get an idea, I start at once building it up in my imagination. I change the construction, make improvements, and operate the device in my mind. It is absolutely immaterial to me whether I run my turbine in thought or test it in my shop. I even note if it is out of balance. There is no difference, whatever, the results are the same. In this way, I am able to rapidly develop and perfect a conception without touching anything. When I have gone so far as to embody in the invention every possible improvement I can think of and see no fault anywhere, I put into concrete form this final product of my brain. Invariably, my device works, as I conceived that it should, and the experiment comes out exactly as I planned it. In 20 years, there has not been a single exception. Even Tesla's great Eureka moment that gave birth to the alternating current motor, which we were talking about earlier, it occurred through a vision very similar to this. He had been toiling away at, at this exact problem for years, and it apparently was the cause of his dropping out of university. He was so obsessed with figuring out this issue that had to do with how to make direct current more efficient and how to re remove a certain element of the motor um, that would allow the current to function in the way that it eventually did in his initial alternating current motor. He was so obsessed with it, it actually began to affect his health. He would not drop it. It was beyond obsession. And as he was walking with a friend on a beach at sunset, it occurred like this, where he recited a passage that he always admired from Faust, which, by the way, of course, Nikola Tesla read all of Faust, and he read all the great literary works and memorized uh, almost all of them for their key passages to just bring up at will. And as he was walking on the beach with his friend, this passage from Faust came into his mind. The glow retreats, done as the day of toil. It yonder hastes, new fields of life exploring. Ah, that no wing can lift me from the soil upon its track to follow, follow soaring. A glorious dream, though now the glories fade, alas, the wings that lift the mind no aid, of wings to lift the body can bequeath me. And after he recited that passage, the image of the induction motor he had been wrestling with struck him clear as day. In Tesla's own words, in his autobiography, he writes, As I uttered these inspiring words, the idea came like a flash of lightning, and in an instant, the truth was revealed. I drew with a stick on the sand the diagrams, shown six years later in my address before the American Institute of Electrical Engineers, and my companion understood them perfectly. The images I saw were wonderfully sharp, and clear, 
and had the solidity of metal and stone, so much so that I told him, see my motor here, watch me reverse it. I cannot begin to describe my emotions. Pygmalion seeing his statue come to life could not have been more deeply moved. A thousand secrets of nature which I might have stumbled upon accidentally, I would have given for that one which I had wrestled from her against all odds and at the peril of my existence." Unquote. And it's here, perhaps, that we get the answer to what Tesla was looking at when he might stop mid-sentence in a conversation or in a room of reporters. He was running an experiment, right in his field of view, right there in the air in front of him, on an engine or a turbine or an electrical circuit, turning it this way and that, tweaking a coil or adjusting a wire connection. If he wasn't so consistently brilliant in his engineering work and discoveries, people at the time, and even now, could have easily labeled him as crazy. That's part of the beautiful paradox of genius and of his genius. How fluidly it seems to move between brilliant and crazy. Part 2. Wizard of New York when Tesla arrived in New York City in 1884, he only had four pennies in his pocket and a handwritten letter. Not even a change of clothes. This wasn't by design. His baggage and his wallet were actually stolen from him. And this certainly made the long ocean voyage even more anxiety-inducing. The letter he brought with him was written by the inventor, Charles Batchelor, whom he knew personally, from Paris, and it was under Charles Batchelor's recommendation that Tesla traveled to New York City with the specific goal of working for Thomas Edison. The letter was meant to be delivered by Tesla's own hand to the American inventor. In it, Batchelor wrote these words, I know two great men, and you are one of them. The other is this young man." Unquote. In the years that followed, Tesla would develop, by all accounts, a contentious relationship with Edison, to the point that they became bitter rivals. Fate had cast their paths in opposition to one another in countless ways. Professionally, they were at odds because Edison had developed a means of electrical power called direct current, which was already being established as the primary means of powering New York City and cities around the world. In fact, before Tesla had arrived in New York City, he had made a career repairing Edison's direct current motors in Europe. And so he was very familiar with their workings. But within the five years of Tesla's arrival, he would completely undo all of Edison's best efforts by presenting the world his own form of electrical power called alternating current, an ingenious system that no one even fathomed was possible at the time. It was 20 times more powerful and efficient than direct current. Now, direct current generators, they had a limited reach of a few miles. And the further away your home or factory was from the generator, then the weaker the electric signal was that you received. It tapered off over distance. This meant that generator stations needed to be built at a radius of about every mile to support anything, any kind of infrastructure sufficiently. 
If you factor in their frequent propensity for breaking, you can imagine how that might have created as many problems as benefits it provided. Whereas Tesla's alternating current practically had no limit for distance, which was a bit of a paradox to people how that was possible. A single alternating current generator station could power a factory 200 miles away with the same intensity as one which was only half a mile away. Now, this was huge. Imagine if the world still ran on direct current today. Property value and rent would likely be higher for buildings that were located closer to Edison generator stations, right? I mean, as that would mean your lights would be brighter and your computer and television could receive the full voltage they need. It's a crazy scenario. We tend to take for granted that Tesla revolutionized this aspect of people's lives, allowing a boom in technological development worldwide. Cities needed less space for generator stations. Factories could be built anywhere without concern for their distance to those generator stations, and people of all economic classes could receive the luxury of electricity in equal measure. But it's important to note that Tesla didn't arrive on the shores of New York City looking for a fight. He actually had hopes to partner with Edison and hopefully convince him. He, he did respect him at the time. Tesla wrote, the meeting with Edison was a memorable event in my life. I was amazed at this wonderful man who, without early advantages and scientific training, had accomplished so much." Unquote. Edison was a keen businessman, and he quickly recognized Tesla's unique abilities and his work habits. He put him to work fixing direct current motors and generators. Then he tasked him with updating the direct current system to make it more efficient. Tesla was convinced this was his chance to present Edison with a superior form of electrical power. He explained to Edison the alternating current system he had been developing for years, uh, but Edison would have none of it. It was a clear failure of imagination on Edison's part. Here was a businessman with a knack for guiding brilliant minds under his wing to invent and adjust their work to his vision. And here was Tesla, this stranger from Europe, in his perfectly tailored suit, telling him his vision was wrong, telling him to do away with all of the infrastructure already in place, to do away with the international funding that was supporting direct currents proliferation. No, this was preposterous. And could you really blame him if you were in his position? If you were already profiting from an invention you created that people praised you for? He told Tesla to just fix the damn direct current like he ordered him to. And if he could fix it, he would pay him $50,000. So Tesla got to work, but didn't let go of that initial alternating current vision. Of course, how could he? Now Tesla was always a workaholic throughout his whole life. Specifically when working for Edison, he wrote in his biography, for nearly a year, my regular work hours were from 10.30 a.m. until 5 a.m. the next morning, without a day's exception, unquote. 
So those are uh, 19-hour days. Easy, right? Now, Edison had once told Charles Batchelor, the man who recommended Tesla to him, Batchelor, this is a damn good man, unquote. So what ultimately caused the break between these two intellectual juggernauts? I mean, in another time and place or in another scenario, their combined talents for both business and creativity, both of them would be billionaires set for generations of their families. The break came when Tesla one day came into Edison's office and proclaimed the work finished. He had not only fixed the problems the direct current motors were experiencing, he had, in fact, improved them. Tesla then asked for the promised 50000 And Edison looked at him confused, patted him on the back, and said, My friend, you do not understand American jokes. And with that, Tesla quit. He was sick and tired of being taken advantage of. It was the same bitter scenario he had experienced in Europe, where factory owners had promised him 15000 for fixing direct current generators. They gave him the runaround, they said, this one's the boss, talk to him, that one's the boss, talk to him. Oh no, he, he's the one that handles the money, talk to him. And he never got that money. That's one of the reasons he came to the land of golden promise, that is the United States of that time, and to New York City. But this, this experience with Edison, this was the last straw for him. And Tesla never forgave Edison for this. When Edison passed away in 1931, many newspapers ran a special memorial where they enlisted commentaries from Edison's friends and colleagues. Uh, here is what went on record in the newspaper as what Tesla said about Edison. He had no hobby, cared for no sort of amusement of any kind, and lived in utter disregard of the most elementary rules of hygiene. His method was inefficient in the extreme, for an immense ground had to be covered to get anything at all unless blind chance intervened, and, at first, I was almost a sorry witness of his doings, knowing that just a little theory and calculation would have saved him 90% of the labor. But he had a veritable contempt for book learning and mathematical knowledge, trusting himself entirely to his inventor's instinct and practical American sense. Unquote. Oh, shots fired. That is, that is a pretty critical statement to publicly publish for someone's memorial. Good thing they didn't ask him to speak at the funeral. I mean, it's clear that two did not see eye to eye on many things. It seems Tesla was very critical when observing the methods of other inventors. I think he held himself to a ridiculously high standard, and hence held all other people to it as well. He often remarked how other inventors would waste their time running physical experiments through trial and error, while his method of visualizing the device in his mind's eye and running the experiment in this way always proved accurate, and paradoxically would mean he wouldn't try building a device until it was already flawlessly conceived in his mind. So Tesla left Edison's workshop and ventured out to find financial backers for his own inventions. 
since Tesla needed money to live, he toiled for a year in an even worse job. He dug ditches. You can imagine this genius inventor, slender, six foot two, in his perfectly tailored suit as germaphobe, with his gold mine of a brain, digging ditches day and night for a year, with all these ideas whirring in his head. Tesla would rarely ever talk about it later in life. In many ways, it was likely a dark psychological time where he may have more than once felt hopeless in this new and strange land. Leaving Edison's workshop was a bold move, but it eventually paid off in a big way. Tesla made enough connections and enough spending money to found the Tesla Electric Company in 1887, and he secured a major deal with the Westinghouse Company in 1888. He finally had his own lab and the resources to devote his time to whatever invention and development interested him. Around this time, Tesla met George Westinghouse, who was a wealthy industrialist and, curiously, an inventor in his own regard. Westinghouse was a very direct businessman who recognized brilliant ideas and brilliant minds when they crossed his path, and he wasn't afraid to take a risk. When he was introduced to Tesla's alternating current system, he immediately, that day, offered Tesla $1 million to purchase all the respective patents plus royalties based on the future usage of the system. The value of $1 million in the 1880s? That must have been enormous. It was unheard of for a sum like that for a business deal. But such was the promise that Westinghouse saw in the inventions of Tesla. Overnight, he went from being a digger of ditches a year ago to among the elite of Manhattan. Requests began to pour in for him to present his inventions and lecture at high society dinners. The author John O'Neill, who personally knew Tesla, wrote of this time. The worldwide fame that came to him at this time was unfortunate. Tesla would have been entirely superhuman had he not derived a great deal of satisfaction out of the Huber-worshipping adulation that now came to him. It was only five years ago that he had been hungry and penniless in the streets of New York, competing with equally hungry hordes of unemployed for the few existent jobs, calling for brute labor. While his head bulged with important inventions which he was anxious to give to the world, no one would listen to him then. And now, the intellectual elites of the nation were honoring him as an unrivaled genius. It's curious to note that Tesla would also sometimes host dinners and parties. I don't know what I would give to be able to be a fly on the wall or to be invited to one of those parties. And many people of the time, who were elites or intellectual thinkers, they really wanted to go to these parties too, because he often would make a big show of it. He would uh, not only have catered food that was hand-chosen by himself, you know, the finest fish and everything, he happened to be a vegetarian too. He would also do demonstrations of his most recent experiments, and he definitely had a knack for spectacle. 
So these demonstrations were often dramatic, and they were often a show in themselves and a form of entertainment. And you can imagine that that cost a certain bit of money as well. But as we'll learn, money didn't seem to be a concern to Tesla. When he had it, he spent it. When he didn't have it, that was a problem. And so what happened? How do we go from this rich wizard of New York to the penniless old man alone in a hotel room? Part 3. The Paradox of Genius As we explore history's great minds, certain patterns emerge. One such pattern history teaches us is this. Unparalleled genius comes with its own price. What that price may be changes from person to person, but it seems that exceptional success in one domain comes at a significant sacrifice of something else. Nature balances the scales. I think this is the hidden reason for Tesla's remarkable creativity and yet his puzzling shortcomings. In reading his writings, it becomes clear that his primary goal wasn't to make money, it was to invent. The process of inventing, experimenting, and perfecting was the greatest joy of his life. It becomes clear that any money he made was always just redirected toward his next experiments or upgrades to his laboratory to foster new inventions. It's also known he paid his workers and assistants very well and never required anyone to stay over time unless it was their own choice. But despite these things, he wasn't the most practical man. He didn't plan for his future the way a normal person might as they reach their 30s and 40s. Tesla's belief was that no matter what happened in his life, he would always be able to fall back on his ability to invent. He would, I guess, invent his way out of any hole he fell into. That it would always be his saving grace, and he even said as much in his writings. For a genius, that kind of thinking works when you're succeeding, and the circumstances in your environment work in your favor. Your talent or genius may sometimes coincide with a wave of success, and he certainly experienced that after his first momentous deal with Westinghouse. But you can always depend on one thing in life, the tides of chaos. We all experience differing degrees of order and chaos in our lives. Even something as simple as doing chores is like a way we attempt to keep the tides of chaos at bay. When they pile up too much, you know, most people get anxious and they get anxiety and it's, it's part of that reason. And when you're successful, chaos may pull back for a time, but it always returns. And when it returns, you better have your house in order because it will rattle your well-laid plans. Oddly enough, I've found in my own life that getting married, having a house, and becoming a father helped teach me to be more pragmatic in this way, to take responsibility for the environment around me. Because when you're single, you can give certain allowances to the chaos around you, as it is only yourself it seems to affect, right? Although, even that's not true. You are actually being selfish when you think 
you are the only one being affected. Oftentimes, your friends, family, and even strangers feel the consequence of those choices you've made as well. But when you are responsible for a child, you are faced with certain reality checks, such as it is your responsibility to take your life choices and your finances more seriously. As an artist, I've always had the penchant to put my creative work first. And like Tesla, I would assume that I could get out of a bind if it came down to it. But since the birth of my daughter four years ago, I began to take my choices and responsibilities more seriously. It is no longer okay to ignore those tides of chaos as they seep in through the door because those decisions now affect the life and well-being of my daughter and the stability of our family. It's a valuable lesson, for sure. But back to Tesla. Tesla was ambitious to a fault, and it may be that his ambition shined so bright that it blinded him to things most people find obvious. In 1895, a large fire destroyed his Fifth Avenue lab in Manhattan. His lab had extended the length of the entire fourth floor. The structure was so weakened during the fire that the floor collapsed, and all of his equipment and documents came crashing down to the floors beneath. Even the work he had saved from his World's Fair contract, it was a devastating loss. Everything he had been working on up to that point had been in the lab. All his equipment and his new inventions were destroyed. And none of it was insured. But fortunately, he still had his life and his faith that the most valuable thing was saved, his mind. After living in a hotel room for a few months trying to regroup, he was able to secure support from a prominent new investor, J.P. Morgan. Yes, of J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. Tesla's ambitions were such that he could not be satisfied with the idea of being known for simple inventions like x-ray, radar, radio, or fluorescent lights. All of which, by the way, he discovered decades before anyone else personally claimed them. No, Tesla's ambitions were much larger. He didn't even think to try to commercialize these inventions or take credit for them. That was for small-time profiteer inventors like Thomas Edison. Tesla wanted the big fish. He had a vision for something on such a massive scale that it made these passing discoveries insignificant to him. He was on the top of the proverbial mountain, looking down. And those discoveries were crumbs he left behind for other inventors to profit from. He could see nothing else in his field of view than his new obsession. To develop it and bring it into the world. He called it the World Wireless System. He believed this was to be his greatest contribution to humanity, even greater than alternating current. He envisioned a system of wireless energy that would allow people on the entire globe to have access to electricity from the Earth's atmosphere and soil, completely free of cost. And this was no pipe dream. He had been working toward this direction for years. The experiments had started early in his career when he figured out a way to pass high-voltage electric currents through his body without sustaining any damage. 
In John O'Neill's description, he says Tesla could increase the voltage 10,000-fold and reduce the amperage proportionately. The current density would thereby be reduced below the point at which it would injure human tissues. And he would use this discovery in his impressive public spectacles, often holding a bulb high above his head like the Statue of Liberty, seemingly lighting it with his own hand. In other demonstrations, he had the flair for the dramatic, and after the lights were turned off in the lab, the audience would witness Tesla suddenly appear, illuminated in the darkness, waving two long tubes lit up like lightsabers as he did some improvised dance movements. They were actually being lit through the wireless current that filled the room. This was the stuff of magic, science fiction. People could do nothing but stare in awe. Here stood Prometheus, bringing down fire and lightning from the gods. When Tesla had a lab in Colorado Springs, he successfully tried his wireless power transmission system at a distance of 26 miles. He was able to light 200 incandescent lamps with no wires, using electricity extracted from the earth, while his oscillator was operating back at his lab 26 miles away. Certainly a successful test run of his theory. He stated, in this new system, it matters little, in fact, almost nothing, whether the transmission is effected at a distance of a few miles or of a few thousand miles." Unquote. And so, with the world wireless system on his mind, he secured $150,000 from his new investor, J.P. Morgan, to build a new lab in Long Island, New York, which would be called Wardenclyffe. The entire project was centered around an immense tower, of which we thankfully still have surviving photos and diagrams. The tower was the broadcasting source of the wireless system Tesla was developing, and the hub of the power source was to be built at Niagara Falls, where Tesla had already experienced an early success in his career, at one point beating out Edison for the contract to build uh, the, one of his first alternating current stations there. Knowing all that we know, that begs the question, what happened to the world wireless system? It's been over 100 years since Tesla did these experiments, and we don't yet have a means of wireless energy that sustains the entire Earth, right? From which both rich and poor can equally benefit. It turns out the reason Tesla's greatest achievement was never realized is the same reason that Thomas Edison first rejected Tesla's alternating current. Tesla's mind was reaching far into the future and seeing something that would bring great benefit to humanity. The reasons it never took off were failure of imagination and greed, the two things that always stop any significant world-altering invention from being realized. But not on Tesla's part. Tesla needed funding and support, of course, to properly build his wireless energy system. He had JP Morgan's support to build the lab at Wardenclyffe, but as Morgan had conversations with Tesla, it started to dawn on him that Tesla's ultimate goal, the free proliferation of energy for all, was not something that could be monetized. To Morgan's intellectual mind, Tesla personified a modern Prometheus, but to Morgan's business mind, he saw Tesla's proposition as a problem. He and his colleagues 
maintain their fortunes through banking, investing, oil, and the electrical industry. How do you make money off of free energy? So, JP Morgan began to publicly pull back his funding of the tower and of Tesla's free energy enterprise. But paradoxically, he still supported Tesla privately as a patron would to an artist he admires. Publicly though, Morgan made it clear, funding was being pulled back on Wardenclyffe, and by extension, a message was sent to all investors who might consider supporting Tesla in the near future. The message being, the great JP Morgan did not approve of this free energy venture. Hence, it was not a financially sound investment. And just like that, it caused a domino effect of reduced interest in Tesla's inventions and their perceived profitability. Now Tesla didn't see the writing on the wall until he realized he didn't have any more money to operate his lab at Wardenclyffe, and that the funds being provided to him privately were only enough to cover his living expenses, but not the experiments working toward his vision. Of all the things Tesla could foresee, he could not foresee this. It was a silent protest conducted by the powers that be, the investors who funded his work. He was both a man ahead of his time and a victim of his time. The success of this wireless energy system would have been significant enough to easily win Tesla a Nobel Prize. Is it any wonder that he didn't concern himself with commercializing X-ray or radar? when in his mind he saw a vision of a future where all societies on earth could use free energy, and he saw himself as the only inventor who could accomplish that ambitious dream. Here is John O'Neill again from the book Prodigal Genius. Tesla's great oversight was that he neglected to invent, so to speak, a device for making the unlimited quantities of money that were necessary to develop his other inventions. As we have seen, he was utterly lacking in the phase of personality that made possible securing of financial returns directly from his inventions. An individual with his ability could have made millions out of each of a number of Tesla's minor inventions. If he had taken the trouble, for example, to collect annual royalties on 20 or more different kinds of devices put out by as many manufacturers employing his Tesla coil for medical treatments, he would have had ample income to finance his world wireless system. His mind, however, was too fully occupied with fascinating scientific problems. He had at times nearly a score of highly skilled workmen constantly employed in his laboratory developing the electrical inventions he was continuing to make at a rapid rate. Armed guards were always stationed around the laboratory to prevent spying on his inventions. His payroll was heavy, his bank balance dangerously low, but he was so immersed in his experimental work that he continuously put off the task of making an effort to repair his finances. He soon found himself facing judgments obtained by creditors on accounts upon which he could not make payments. He was forced in 1905 to close the Wardenclyffe Laboratory. Tesla then opened an office at 165 Broadway in Manhattan. He tried to secure more investors to revive the project. Judd O'Neill continues, when it became apparent that Tesla was in financial difficulties, 
Any who had assumed that Morgan was financially involved as an investor in his project were disillusioned. When specific inquiries revealed that the great financier held no interest whatever in the enterprise, the rumor got into circulation that Morgan had withdrawn his support. And when no reason for such action could be learned, the rumor expanded to carry the story that Tesla's system was impracticable." Unquote. And so, with money to live, but no money to continue his world wireless system, Tesla had to make the regrettable decision to move forward with other projects. But you can't help but imagine what would have been possible had Tesla not had to rely so heavily on those profiteering investors. If he had instead been able to collect his own wealth throughout the years from basic commercialization and legal royalty payments of the works he already released, he would have likely been able to continue and finish this vision. Tesla's own accountant, George Scherf, would valiantly try to convince him to monetize those inventions, and his response was always, this is all small-time stuff, I cannot be bothered with it. For example, there were dozens of companies using his patented Tesla coils and profiting from selling great numbers of them. But he did not permit his accountant to set up a side business, contacting these companies and requesting royalty payments or suing them for the owned royalties. He did, however, once admit, if the manufacturers paid me 25 cents on each coil they sold, I would be a wealthy man." Unquote. It's hard to fully understand the mindset here. Wouldn't anyone in their right mind take the necessary steps to secure a living from their inventions, given these circumstances? I think it teaches us something about genius. Genius can be wildly impractical. And in some ways, genius can even become detrimental to the well-being of the one possessing it. That's the paradox, isn't it? But isn't that what we expect from geniuses? The mind of a genius travels into foreign lands of thought and explores distances outside of normal convention which we did not imagine were possible. It is both the burden and the blessing of genius, the idea that you are exploring uncharted territories of thought. But the burden of that notion is that you don't always come across as brilliant to those around you. You may excel in the particular field of your expertise, but you may lack complete common sense. And sometimes you aren't even considered a genius for years, decades, until society has had the time to confirm your brilliance. There is a saying that a genius is slowly discovered and a fraud is slowly found out. Until the point when consensus accepts your genius, uh, you're just a weirdo, which is a strange place to be. In 1912, an announcement came from Sweden that Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison had been chosen to share the 1912 Nobel Prize in Physics. The award carries with it a $40,000 prize, which Tesla would have to split with Edison. Despite needing the money, Tesla refused to accept the award. He was the first scientist to refuse the world-famous prize. His reasoning? He believed there was a very definite distinction 
between the inventor of useful appliances and the discoverer of new principles of nature. He considered Edison an inventor of useful appliances. But Tesla saw himself as a discoverer, someone who is a pioneer who opens up new fields of knowledge. To share that award with Edison would diminish the real contribution of Tesla's work and disrespect the distinction between the two. And on that note, we'll give the final words to Tesla himself. Let the future tell the truth and evaluate each one according to his work and accomplishments. The present is theirs. The future, for which I really worked, is mine. I hope you enjoyed that deep dive into Nikola Tesla. There is honestly so much to say about this man that it was a difficult task to even narrow it down to what we did cover. And I initially was expecting to make this episode more about his eccentricities and the, and the funny stories you find about him when you first read about Tesla. There's a lot of fun stuff out there. Take the drunk history episode, for example, between him and Edison. I think there's even a rap battle on YouTube that's actually pretty accurate. But as I dug deeper and deeper, I found there was a story to tell. And it's a story that I hadn't heard anywhere else. A story about the pitfalls of genius and the irony of being the Prometheus of your time and the victim of it as well. Most articles you read about him, they'll focus on the odd stuff, the funny stuff, the weird stuff. So I have no doubt that you'll enjoy going on a Google journey about Mr. Tesla if you haven't already. But you won't find anyone really trying to make sense of the paradoxes in this man's life. And I hope I did something worthwhile in that regard. In case you're not convinced Tesla was a bit odd by even modern standards, here is one of my favorite tidbits about him. In all the research historians have done and all the questions reporters asked him at the time, no one has found any proof Tesla ever had an intimate relationship with either man or woman. And I find that surprising. Because even Leonardo da Vinci was known to have had intimate relationships. Even Albert Einstein had them too. Tesla was at one time a rich and eccentric bachelor. So reporters often asked him who his girlfriend or wife was. And his answer was, there has never been a great inventor who was married. At other times, he admitted his personal stance that having sex reduces your creative energies. Perhaps he was right, or perhaps he invented that answer to explain his lack of interest in the opposite sex, or even sex in general. Perhaps he didn't feel sexual attraction to any humans. So he claimed to take a vow of celibacy for his work. And there's no plain way to say this next part. He was in love with a pigeon. Tesla always felt a special affection for the pigeons of New York City, and people would often see him walking around Manhattan picking up any injured birds to nurse them back to health. People outside would note times when this man, who was known for being a germaphobe, would stand with his arms outstretched and allow dozens of pigeons to land on him and around him as he fed them handfuls 
of bird seeds. But there was something special about one pigeon that was the focus of his affections. She was pure white, and apparently toward the end of his life, she would visit him on the windowsill of his hotel room at the New Yorker. We know his relationship with her was serious because he even wrote her love poems. You can imagine the FBI's confusion when he passed away and they rushed to his hotel room, expecting to confiscate his papers, and they did, and his belongings, assuming they would find the prototypes and diagrams for his fabled death ray, or even the secret formulas for wireless energy generators. But instead, they found love poems to a pigeon. Now, all that other stuff existed, but it passed with him onto the other side. We cannot separate the man from the eccentricities, and they are part of the joy of learning about Tesla, honestly. I hope you take this episode as an invitation to look more at his work and at his life. I certainly have, and it's, it's enriched me in innumerable ways. Now, the three books that were my primary references are uh, Prodigal Genius by John O'Neill, who was a contemporary of Tesla's, which makes the book uh, especially unique as he was able to carry on conversations with him, and he also has the first-hand historical context for all the events. Also, My Writings by Nikola Tesla himself, written in his charming and eloquent English. And finally, Tesla, The Wizard of Electricity by David Kent. This last one is a good introductory volume to the man and his life, with photos and fun anecdotes, but also legitimate research references. I hope the main takeaways you got from the episode are thoughtful reflections on the paradox of genius. I'll be expanding on my thoughts on that topic with a creativity tip in the next week. Creativity tips are these extra mini-episodes I've started producing that expand on ideas mentioned in these long-form episodes. And the goal is to give them practical benefit so that you have something applicable to your daily life. You can find all the current creativity tips on my Patreon page at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash MJ Dorian. Now, I'll be illustrating a Tesla portrait following the release of this episode, and there will be an art giveaway only for Patreon supporters. If you want a chance to win that ink portrait of Mr. Nikola Tesla, all you have to do is become a supporter at any tier level, can be as small as a dollar, and it enters you into the contest for that month, which will be a random drawing, so everyone has an equal chance. I thank you for your support. Please leave a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that helps tremendously to get the show noticed. The next episode will be a sit-down conversation with an artist whom I admire, and it will be coming in May, and I hope you'll be back for that. This has been Creative Codex. I am MJ Dorian. I thank you again for your support. Until next time, stay weird, stay brilliant, and travel light.